Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Doctor Family podcast, back after a bit of an enforced break. In this podcast, we'll be looking at an important issue that will affect 10% of the population at any one time. And throughout life, about one in five of us will have an episode of this at least once. This podcast is all about depression. In this episode, I'm very lucky to be joined by Dr. Alison Chalu, a consultant community psychiatrist in Brighton and Hove. I asked Dr. Chalu how the pandemic and lockdown was affecting mental health. They are predicting quite a massive, quite sort of a steep increase in mental health difficulty over the next 12 to 18 months, if not longer, for all the sort of, whether it be grief or bereavement or loss of finances or isolation, a whole, you know, myriad of problems. Yeah. Quite how we're going to, to get over that, I'm not sure. No, um, I don't know. When we have COVID to cope with again, possibly. Yes, it, 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 it never gets any easier, as they say. Perhaps, perhaps we could start by just talking about, you know, the definition of depression. Mm. Well, I mean, depression is an incredibly common condition. Um, it's deemed to be probably up there, close to sort of ischemic heart disease regarding morbidity across the world. And the prevalence is sort of how common it is, is deemed to be approximately 10% at any one time. So that's one in 10 people suffering from depression. And we know that the lifetime risk of depression is somewhere between one in five or one in six. Um, so that's an awful lot of the population who potentially can become depressed on one occasion. Some people then can become depressed more than once and it can recur throughout their lives. Um, and so whenever people, I guess, first come to see a GP like yourself, they'd be assessed regarding their mood and how how severe it is, how how it's impacting upon their life. So the word depression is sort of banded around quite a lot, whether it be in the press or by all of us at times. Um, but actually depression as an illness really can be incredibly incapacitating. We talk about depressed mood. That means the mood is low persistently for at least two weeks officially, although generally by the time patients come to primary care or certainly secondary care, they've been depressed for a lot longer than two weeks. So that's obviously sort of the first and sort of foremost symptom. And then alongside that, people lose interest in activities, loss of interest in the normal simple things in life, their hobbies, spending time with their family or friends. Often people can get sort of biological symptoms of depression where often the sleep can become really impoverished, often sleeping just a few hours at night or waking very early in the morning. Some people go the other way, but, but generally sleep can get affected. And people's appetite also is often affected and people can lose weight. Alongside feeling very low, people can often feel quite sort of helpless or hopeless about the future and have very sort of negative thoughts about themselves. They can have low self-esteem or feel guilty about things that they shouldn't feel guilty about. And all of these sort of experiences can sort of spill out into their life, into their work, into their family life, to the point that they might have to take time off from work. They may have caring responsibilities, for example, regarding children, and just not be able to manage or function, let alone look after themselves, which is, which obviously is a, the key point about when people really need to get help, and i.e. that's early, before it gets to a really sort of serious position. Yes. I mean, I often think something we band around, which is the, the biopsychosocial model of health. Mm-hmm. And this particularly fits, I think, uh, with depression in terms of the the biological being the the brain chemistry was the way I think about it. The psychological being the thought processes that go on uh, within the brain in terms of how how situations which come up are, are thought through and how that 
positively or negatively impacts on people's mood and the social the the network of things going on around them the pressures they have in life and how that either lifts them or sort of makes them feel worse i find that quite a useful model for, for me as a gp looking at it I think we, we do the same. We look at sort of the, the P's. We look at what predisposes somebody to coming unwell, what's precipitating it now, and what's sort of perpetuating it. And predisposing can be our biology, can be our genes. You know, many conditions have some kind of genetic component and depression is, is no different. So if you have a family member who's had depression, you are more likely. It doesn't mean you will get depression in your life, but you're more likely to. So, so there's some of these things that we can't do anything about. We can't help our gender. We can't help our, you know, our, our sort of family history. But looking at all the other things, so it might be, say, if somebody becomes depressed, if we look at those sort of those those indicators, so they might have a family history, um, they might have had depression in the past, they'd be two indicators why they'd be more likely to get depressed in the future. Precipitating might be troubles at work, stress, it could be loss of finances or loss of a family member, breakup of a relationship, you know, stress comes in all shapes and sizes. You might have sort of drug or alcohol issues in there as well, which are also an additional stress and then supportive structures around somebody yeah so really important is somebody isolated or do they have supportive family or friends makes a huge difference and things that they are people doing for themselves such as going out for walks or going to the gym or going for a swim what kind of hobbies they like to do are they eating well trying to keep a routine just trying to keep otherwise physically healthy so it is a whole sort of mishmash of um factors that either can sort of contribute to somebody getting unwell, but also contribute to somebody getting better. People will have found themselves at a point where things aren't right. They've, they've found themselves with some of the symptoms that you've described there with the low mood, perhaps lacking in motivation. When they come along to see a doctor, what's the sort of thing that they can expect in terms of help in getting themselves back to where they need to be? I guess, first of all, it's an assessment, so understanding why this has happened at this point in time. Um, and like I spoke about, there's all the factors, trying to understand what is it that can be addressed to make that person get better as, as quickly as possible. So the assessment would take, in the play, in a, as in we, we would talk to somebody, we might also do some blood tests, underlying tests, rule, rule out any sort of underlying physical causes for depression. And, and then we talk about regarding risk, because obviously, People think of depression, the word suicide again is, is we hear it in the media, people are aware of people trying to end their life or, or having, you know, actually having done it. And that's part of the risk assessment that we would do as a doctor, asking how low is somebody, have they thought about thoughts of ending their life? And depending on the assessment um, and where somebody's at, we then talk about what may help. And looking at sort of the, the medical side of things, if you like, the two mainstays are medicines and talking therapies and then looking at everything else it's looking at drugs and alcohol as support it's exercise it's sleeping well it's all the other things and reducing stress so that sounds like quite a lot within an assessment and I appreciate GPs have far less time to assess than a than a psychiatrist does we have you know up to an hour to assess somebody when we first see them so we can go into a lot more detail about why that person's got depressed and what we can offer in general practice, we see a lot of patients who present with depression. We are able to manage most of them as we have access to the talking therapies as well as medications such as SSRI antidepressants, which a lot of people will have heard about and a lot of people will have been taking. However, if when we risk assess a patient, it suggests that they are at a high risk of self-harm or suicide, we would clearly be referring them on to the community mental health team. 
there they'd be getting the expert help as well as close monitoring to keep them safe. But can I ask, Alison, are there other reasons we might be sending people through to you for your input? I think it's not just about the level of risk. Obviously, that's a very important um, reason to refer on. But I think when people are more complicated, so maybe complex medical um, conditions, odd sort of um, combinations of medications that have been tried for various different reasons, um, I think getting an expert opinion is very useful then when it's not just a simple clear cut. I mean, I don't, I don't know if depression ever is a simple and clear cut thing, but obviously some people are managed easier, may not have comorbid or sort of extra health conditions. Um, obviously medicines have interactions. Um, and if we're thinking there might be more, say, psychological parts to somebody's presentation or history of trauma, um, it may well be that a more sort of expert psychological opinion might be useful as well. Locally to us, patients or GPs are able to refer directly into psychological talking therapies. Is there more specialist input available through the community mental health team directly? Yes, yeah, so, so where I work in a secondary mental health community team, it's a multidisciplinary team made up by consultant psychiatrists and junior doctors. We also have psychologists, occupational therapists, social workers and nurses, and we have access also to um, what we call a group treatment service, so sort of a group therapy for people maybe with depression or anxiety, um, where they can receive maybe one-to-one support on a weekly basis, but also have sort of psychological and a more sort of holistic approach to overcoming their their difficulties, which is sort of a step up above and beyond what's available in primary care, such as the um, IAPs or the psychological therapies that, that patients can self-refer to. I asked Dr Chalu how the psychiatry service have been adapting to the new normal within the COVID lockdown, new ways of working. It's been a very steep learning curve and a, and a rapid change in the way we've all been working. So yes, yeah, so we're not, with, uh, the government guidelines is that we don't assess patients face to face and then unless there is a real clinical risk, we have to. So I have seen some patients at home who've been very unwell. Um, but by and large, my clinics, my day to day work is all done virtually, either by phone or like a Skype kind of platform. It has its pros and cons for everybody. Um, where I work, it's not the easiest to get to transport wise. So some patients like it because it saves two bus loads, you know, an hour of, of travel each way. Um, but for others, they very much benefit from the personal sort of approach being in a room if they're upset or distressed. It's much easier to support somebody, I think, if you're actually in the room with them than if they're at home on their own. And potentially patients may have family members in the house or children. It's difficult for them to divulge you know, difficult information or very sensitive information. So we've, you know, within the trust I work in, we've very much sort of taken on board the new platforms of working and the virtual ways of working. You know, sometimes I'll finish a clinic and then if I was starting a medicine traditionally, I'd have given the patient a prescription. Nowadays, I have to either email it and I can only email certain pharmacies. If not, after clinic, I sometimes find myself driving around the town where I work, dropping off prescriptions to various chemists or through letterboxes of patients. So it's it's, it's a very it's really quite different. And, you know, and the rest of the team, most people are being advised to work from home as well. So it's quiet here at work. I think many of the doctors come in and we sort of all sit in our own offices next to each other busying away on the phones and, uh, and the Skype appointments and writing prescriptions. But it does, it's one of the problems we've noticed is that all these sort of um, extra teams within our service, so the eating disorder service, the group treatment service, they've all been pretty much on hold because 
most of their work is face to face and they can't do it virtually although they're trying to overcome that now so most of the work has come our way because we are still operating in a community team as per well as per normal we're not saying no to anyone the service you may get be different but we're still definitely here and up and running and certainly we noticed a drop off of referrals initially but then quite a few of our patients find it really difficult in lockdown you know all the usual things that used to keep them well you know going to their art class going to the gym or meeting up with friends all suddenly stops so people sitting at home ruminating on whatever the negative thoughts or difficulties were it was really very difficult for quite a lot of people yes i think we've noticed that too and certainly i don't know whether there was a certain capacity that people could put up with for a certain length of time but certainly i think we've gone past that now and we're seeing people who've really sort of feeling the the difficulties of uh, the, the the social isolation which we've Mm. been going through um so the thing that i've i've noticed because we've moved in general practice to doing an awful lot more virtually over the telephone or, or occasionally video and i think the thing that we i i feel that we've lost is is a lot of the non-verbal communication it's it's much more mm-hmm. difficult for us is that something that you've noticed absolutely i think we found as anecdotally most patients prefer using the phone rather than the um skype like sort of video conferencing And it is, it's like you're assessing blind. You can't pick up on the little things. And sometimes the subtleties of people's body language or how they're looking or how they, their eye contact with you, those things you, well, you just can't pick up on. You just have to go on sort of what they're telling you and and also on the tone of their voice. And it it is hard. And we're much more likely to miss things, which is, you know, which is worrying as a consultant psychiatrist, really worrying. Um, And we've got our junior trainees coming back in in August. We haven't had any the whole time during COVID because they were all pulled to the acute trusts. And at the moment, we're trying to work out how we're going to manage them assessing patients by phone when they've never done psychiatry before. But, you know, it's a work in progress. We we will get over it. We're hoping to get some patients back up face to face, even if it's just for new patient assessments. Because I think to try and offer the best service to people, we don't want to be missing out subtleties. No, it's it's an interesting challenge. The other thing that I think that we've been sort of missing out you, you sort of mentioned a bit that people's normal support networks and, and things that they'd be doing normally to keep themselves well might have been put on hold during the lockdown but certainly just before the lockdown locally we've been working very closely with the charity mind and that's brought a lot of benefits to to, to our patients who are perhaps just between needing more support than a GP can give them but perhaps not quite at the level where they're needing care from the the community mental health team is that something that's being rolled out with you as well it's quite I mean it's variable so some mental health lines had more input whereas our local service that patients can sell refer to that was pulled back quite a lot the recovery college which is has been sort of initiative over the last few years that was sort of pulled as well that's a um, where people again can learn how to manage conditions from bipolar to depression, um, socialising and you know, managing sort of things through isolation. So a lot of things have been pulled, unfortunately. There's, there hasn't been that much that's been increased, unfortunately. So again, there's been more stresses on the whole system, which will have a negative effect, obviously, on, on the individual. Yes, yes, very difficult. Uh, the, in, in terms of the other thing that we, we, we often find, um, of, of, as I think I mentioned at the beginning, beginning there's this um depression but anxiety is another sort of part of a spectrum and we often find people have got you know, sorry some people have either very clearly got very bad anxiety 
other people who've got very clearly depression but there is also a a blurring in the middle where where people can be depressed and anxious at the same time is, is the way mm-hmm. that that's managed any different so i mean you're right depression and anxiety are really commonly seen together um anxiety again is you know really common we all get anxious at time it's a normal human emotion and sort of reaction to stresses in life but when it becomes heightened to the point that it interferes again with functioning it becomes a real problem it can be very very disabling so medication wise there are lots of antidepressants which are good for anxiety as well as depression um, and so we would probably err towards those medications first um, some of the SSRIs are um, venafaxine and duloxetine which are SNRIs they can be very good um, but equally we sometimes use other medicines sort of as an add-on to antidepressants such as propranolol if someone has got asthma that can be very good in low dose so if somebody has sort of symptoms or has sort of um, can feel palpitations or uh, the physical symptoms of anxiety commonly rather than just sort of the mental um, anxiety propranolol can be very good we use low dose antihistamines like promethazine equally because they're not addictive they can be quite calming um, and people can use them on a regular basis or once or twice a day as needed. Um, sometimes we use low-dose antipsychotics. Um, equally, we, we use antipsychotics in, in depression sometimes if someone is really unwell or it can help um, augment or improve the effect of the antidepressant. Um, and again, low-dose antipsychotics, while it's off license, we do use it in small doses, again, just to, just to take the edge off someone's sort of anxiety, primarily because, they're, again, they're, they're not addictive. We try to avoid using things like benzodiazepines for all of the obvious reasons, because they're addictive. And whilst they're great in the short term, they just cause obviously long-term problems for individuals. So we do use them sometimes, especially when people are acutely unwell, maybe in hospital, as in on a psychiatric ward or in a, acutely in crisis. Um, but that would be something generally we would want to manage and prescribe and not ask you to take over. Interesting. I mean, the propranolol is something we, we often give. It's a beta blocker. So it blocks that adrenaline rush that people seem to, seem to get in, in anxiety. So that's, that's interesting. And promethazine is another one that I'm comfortable using. But I think, again, I, uh, if a patient is getting to the point where they're going to be needing some antipsychotic medication, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be picking up the phone to, to my friendly psychiatrist with some support. I think I want to point out anyone who is suffering from depression should be seeking help. There are some really useful apps out there, uh, such as the Staying Alive app. If people are feeling at risk of self-harming or feeling suicidal, they should be seeking help immediately. And charities like Mind are there to support people who have uh, mental health issues, but also people who have the people who are family members of those who have got those issues as well. Ali, I'm really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been great. It's a lovely summary of depression and anxiety. Can I just add one more thing? Yes, please. Obviously, I've worked in psychiatry now for a long time, too long for me to remember. The one thing I want to say about depression, people often feel guilty. They should just be able to sort of shake it off. They should be able to get over it without any help. It's an illness like any other, and it responds to the right treatment. So get help and don't sit at home thinking it's your fault because it's not. Thank you ever so much for listening today. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised, then please do get in touch with your GP. In an emergency, there are always mental health helplines. There's the Staying Alive app, which you can download onto your phone, or the Samaritans to call. I'll be putting links to these, which are available within the UK, down in our show notes. But a Google search will find you something local to you wherever you are in the world. 
I hope you've enjoyed today's show and learned something about this very big topic. Please do give us your feedback. Join us online on Facebook or Twitter. Please do let us know things you'd rather hear, things that you'd be interested in hearing and encouragement. There shouldn't be such a big gap between this episode and the next as I've already recorded the next one and just need to edit it down and I'm hopeful that you'll find it as enjoyable to listen to as I found recording it. Until the next time, thanks for joining us. Take care. Playing us out, as ever, the wonderful Drew Worthley. is on my coaster He's wreathed in gold stars His revolution's a sad face